Welcome to another episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie reviews and discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always, be warned, these reviews and discussions might include spoilers. So this week's episode is all about the return of one of my favorite slasher icons, the chainsaw-toting human mask maker himself, Leatherface. Last year I reviewed the entire series for Daily Horror Habit, which was a journey in the ever-evolving and shifting tonal pursuits each subsequent sequel to Toby Hooper's 1974 masterpiece would take. And while I didn't find the last several Texas Chainsaw Massacre films to be to my liking, I was still eagerly anticipating David Blue Garcia's crack at bringing Leatherface out of retirement with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is streaming on Netflix. Texas Chainsaw Massacre picks up nearly 50 years after the events of the original film, and, you guessed it, the film disregards all the other sequels. The film follows a group of social media influencers who are attempting to buy up the ghost town of Harlow, Texas in hopes of revitalizing it for some influencer community bullshit. But unfortunately for them, one of the town's last remaining residents, Leatherface, doesn't take too kindly to this, and what ensues is a bloodbath of gleefully brutal proportions. Running parallel to the misfortune set to be bestowed upon these app-obsessed Gen Zers is the return of the lone survivor from the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Sally Hardesty, played by Olin Faree, who replaced Marilyn Burns, who had since passed away. The two storylines intertwine as soon as the bloodbath begins, but before diving into what I found to be an entertaining return to a slasher classic, a bit of context. According to Deadline.com, the film was originally directed by brother directors Ryan and Andy Tohill, who were either let go or quit after financier Legendary wasn't a fan of what they produced in the first six days of shooting. Which I'd say is about the worst thing that could happen to a project other than, you know, a chainsaw-wielding maniac killing the entire cast and crew. That'd be pretty bad in my opinion. The brothers would be replaced by David Blue Garcia, who would scrap everything they shot and start from square one. Now, at some point during the course of the year leading up to the original, unspecified 2021 release, the film received numerous negative test screenings, to the degree that the theatrical plans were scrapped and it was instead purchased by Netflix to be a streaming exclusive. Again, clearly not the strongest of starts. Now normally, I'd be screaming for those involved to just pull the plug and start over, given the numerous updates around the film seemingly indicating it amount to little more than a dead-on-arrival attempt at a revival. The only thing that kept my optimism was one figure involved in the film's conception, that being Fede Alvarez. Now, I'm gonna keep this brief as I know your time's valuable and I need to actually get back to talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but Alvarez's Evil Dead remake is one of the best horror movies of the last almost decade since its release. So yeah, his name carries some serious fucking weight in this house. So after a turbulent development and a surprise surprise, Netflix's absolute ineptitude at properly marketing anything that doesn't star Ryan Reynolds, The Rock, or Gal Gadot, how did Texas Chainsaw Massacre actually turn out? Well, it turned out to be better than I expected, actually. While the original film shined despite its actual on-screen violence, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a pig in shit in regards to the creative sledgehammer means with which Leatherface pummels and slices through his prey. Frequently switching between two modes of hunt, Landshark and Wrecking Ball, this utilization portrays him in a manner that we have seen glimpses of, but never to the extent unleashed here. In what is, without question, one of my favorite first kills of the year, we see Leatherface stalking his prey in a poppy seed field just outside of Harlow. Leatherface is riding the back of a police van transporting him, his adoptive mother who's in death's grasps, two cops, and one of the Gen Zers riding shotgun. Upon his adoptive mother flatlining, Leatherface's return to his former horrifying glory is activated. 
He proceeds to facilitate the van crashing into a nearby tractor by breaking the cop's wrist, jabbing him in the throat with it, which resulting in his firearm discharging and finding a home in his partner's neck. From the jump, this movie gets a half star just for the broken wrist bone neck stab alone. The seemingly lone survivor of the van crash is one of our Gen Z influencers, trapped in the front seat, who proceeds to watch the reflection of Leatherface slicing off the face of his deceased caretaker, only to admire his handiwork in the bristling Texas sun, before donning his new face much as the Batman would his cowl. The framing of this scene is not only terrific, but it doesn't cast Leatherface as the wrecking ball brute most consider him to be. He silently circles the truck much like a shark circling a seal, following the scent of prey to the cabin of the truck. Though, when he strikes, he's unrelenting in his efficiency. While the influencer's playing dead, she watches as Leatherface bashes the driver's head in with an acetylene tank. Only for him to suddenly disappear once again, seemingly failed to have noticed she was still alive. That is, until the influencer attempts to crawl from the van's smashed window, and Leatherface appears behind her, subsequently gutting her with a piece of glass. I found this to be an incredibly smart direction for the first kill of the film, as it shows how director David Blue Garcia and cinematographer Ricardo Diaz wanted to redefine what people could expect from Leatherface. And while the film never actually approaches a kill with this much tact again, it isn't a simple case of a horror flick blowing its spooky load too early, as Texas Chainsaw Massacre's body count is memorable in the best and most dismembering means possible. It isn't just that the body count is the largest of any TCM film to date, but it's the level of savagery that unfolds on screen. Leatherface doesn't just smash someone's knee with the hammer, but has to hyperextend it to the extent no deep tissue massage is going to work that out. He doesn't just board a bus full of influencers who threaten to cancel him if he tries anything, he's in a bus full of chum and it's feeding time. There's so many minor details to kills that show his feverish ferocity in a manner that I don't recall many other films of the franchise having. It's also the way in which the violence is layered in the film, slowly but surely growing increasingly more grotesque the longer the film progresses. Now, while doling out praise for the film's violence, I'd be remiss to not place ample credit on Mark Burnaham's performance as Leatherface, which is fantastic. Between his stature and physicality, Leatherface is as imposing as he's ever been, whether or not a chainsaw is actually present. The ability to induce fear just by him standing atop a staircase, staring down his prey, only to hit an impressive 40 yard time to saw his prey in half, makes him more versatile than ever before. I'd go so far as to put him amongst the ranks of Derek Mears from Friday the 13th, or Andrew Bryanarski from 2003's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. If you were simply looking for a nasty 90s era DTV slasher sequel, Texas Chainsaw Massacre fits that bill very nicely. So while it capitalizes on bloodshed in memorable fashion, it's a shame that the film's narrative is a jumbled and fumbled mess that attempts to capitalize on other, better films' successful resurgences of slasher icons. When discussing a film series, fans and critics alike have a tendency to get caught up on legacy. Whether continuing a storyline or character arc, a certain amount of baggage accompanies legacy, which can drum up mixed results. And while I'm all for deviations on a character's storyline, it still needs to feel justified in that character's inclusion for this new story being told. The most recent successful example of a classic horror series legacy being continued in a meaningful way would be David Gordon Green's 2018 Halloween reboot, which saw the return of Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode picking up 40 years after the events of the original film. A meaningful, if imperfect, continuation of her character that amounted to more than a mere cameo or two. It felt like a justified inclusion and was integral to the narrative of the reboot, something that Texas Chainsaw Massacre goes to great pains to replicate, but ultimately fails to. 
Before diving into the buzzword mania of our influencer crop of characters, I have to say that Sally Hardesty's storyline is not only nonsensical, but completely shoehorned to a degree that it undercuts the one potentially interesting narrative angle. In the almost half century since the events of the original, Sally's hunted the man who killed her friends on that fateful summer of 1974. And, you know, understandably so, but considering it feels exactly like Laurie Strode's arc of Halloween 2018, devoid of any actual increased understanding of how those events shaped Sally's past other than her gun-toting exterior, makes this entire segment almost meaningless. It just serves to say, hey, remember her, this character from the original? It's also nonsensical at times, further indicating just how desperate the studio was to jam this storyline down our throats. For starters, Sally calls Leatherface Leatherface, which was not a thing in the original film. And I don't even think anyone ever called him that when the crime was being reported in the original film or in the other movies in the series. There's also an instance where Sally shouts, say my name at him, which, uh, how would he know this? That's right, he wouldn't. Uh, that, it's completely ridiculous because that's never been a part of the narrative at all. The point of Sally and her friends being killed is that they were just one of potentially many people that stumbled across the Sawyer household and whatnot. And there's no indication that, and you know, other than the fact that in the film itself, they never have any dialogue with one another. Also, you know, the idea that Leatherface has the capacity to even remember information other than like his most primal actions uh, is pretty comical. And you know, I honestly don't even have much to say about Olin Foree's performance because outside of two or three scenes, she's hardly saying or doing anything in the movie. And as there's no real further investigating her character, I can't not think what's the point of her inclusion. Again, it's a flimsy connection to the original that, without spoiling, completely wastes this potential to actually a surprisingly kind of insulting degree in terms of her character uh, and what they meant to the original film and the legacy of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But uh, on to the influencers. And you know, when it comes to slashers, I can't think of a more apt fodder for slaughter than influencers. Sorry, but there, I said it. In all seriousness though, the premise isn't as terrible as some claimed it to be when the film synopsis dropped a few weeks before the film's release. Modern times call for modern solutions, and Harlow laying on its bare belly, its legs having fallen off long ago, it makes that town ripe for the young and wealthy to try to buy it up. What I really take issue with is, you guessed it, the dialogue that deals almost exclusively in buzzwords and only ever offers the surface-level examination of important real-world issues, such as, such as gentrification, racism, and gun violence in America. That last one being what I'd say is the biggest oversight of the entire film. The only notable character of the influencers is Leela, who's played by Elise Fisher, and that was entirely due to two brief glimpses into a past trauma that she experienced that are never really explored in, you know, any meaningful way. She's a school shooting survivor who grapples with the death of her friends, with the heavy indication that she suffers from survivor's guilt. Now, given the prevalence of not only school shootings, but shootings in general in America, this is probably the one aspect of the narrative that doesn't feel entirely far-fetched and it's completely squandered, being a mere footnote that never gets explored or applies any real complexity to her or her relationship with the violence occurring before her. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if Sally's storyline took away from an added emphasis on her trauma, which, seeing how that arc turned out, is a real shame. And it's complemented by the film's completely phoned-in dialogue that, again, downplays systematic societal issues in America, such as police violence and racism, in a groan-inducing manner. 
And despite whatever studio fuckery or influence that resulted in a jumbled narrative, at the end of the day, Texas Chainsaw Massacre absolutely delivers some gory goods with a top-tier finale that had me watching it the following night so I could show my roommates. And even if you aren't a massive fan of Texas Chainsaw Massacre or horror movies in general, it's a perfectly fun slasher to throw on with some buddies over a couple of cold ones. And at the end of the day, given the sort of turbulent development cycle this movie had and whatnot, and the fact that it's been so long since we had what I'd consider an actually entertaining or quality Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, sequel. I mean, this is about as good as I could have expected from something like that, even if it's not without its faults. And before I round out this episode, uh, just a note about the show for the rest of the month of March, as each week I will have on a guest to chat about a body horror film of their choosing, a subgenre that is uh, near and dear to my ever-decaying heart. So, as always, thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit, and you can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod, or give me a follow at NotFunnyJ. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.